to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching The Invisible Man 2020. When Cecilia's abusive ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune, she suspects his death was a hoax. As a series of coincidences turn lethal, Cecilia works to prove that she is hunted by someone nobody can see. Alright, so this is this is a new release <sighs> that I have been. This is one of the movies that is that was really getting me to be like, I really want to watch more current horror because I feel like they're doing they're doing a lot more interesting storytelling. And so then that's what's making me want to like go reinvestigate older horror that I just never saw. Yeah. And um, this is one of the last movies to come out before the pandemic lockdown. It kind of. Yeah, it came out right before it. And then, like, they pivoted really quickly to then making it also available on demand. Because that this is a movie that's perfectly fine to just watch in your house, like, honestly. This is one that I would have loved to have seen in theaters. This was yeah. one that, that I was, I was like, we are seeing this in theaters. It would fuck me up, though. I, oh, this, this, I, like, after we watched it, I was like, you have to come with, I can't go to our room by myself. Uh, it, it has super creep vibes and diana doesn't like creep vibes and sometimes diana needs to be able to see the other person in the room <laughs> let's start with this fact this movie is difficult it's not a graphic film no but it is a very creepy film and it has a lot of domestic violence and trauma there's just a lot of triggers here i believe that's been discussed in pretty much every review of this film so we just want to make sure that's very well stated here. That's a huge theme of this film. And just to just to point out some trivia on this, this film is not without controversy. There were a lot of people who refused to see the film outright because of its themes. Sure. Which on the one hand is a, is a self-safety issue, but then there were also abuse victims who stated that the trailer alone caused triggering Was, reactions. Uh, cer- certainly. Because it does not shy away from depicting it. Absolutely. So that totally sucks. It just, it just sucks. Um, just from a that exists in the world thing. From a storytelling perspective, it's really it's it's very well done. It is not gratuitous. I don't <laughs> feel at all. Um, we're we're not gonna be able to talk about this movie without talking about it. We're just we're just not. So if you need to skip out on this movie, we totally understand. You can skip ahead a little bit. We'll put it in the show notes to our review of a separate movie that we'll also be including on this podcast. Mm-hmm. As far as the movie goes, though, I really, I mean, I I was completely fucking creeped out by it. It was very creepy. Even moments that I saw coming, multiple jump scares. Oh, yeah. Multiple jump scares, which I love. I'm a hard person to surprise. I am, just as a general rule. I say this a lot on our Riverdale podcast. I'm a TV genius. I can see most things. So when I get surprised, it's a shock. It's really fun. So I really enjoyed it for that aspect. Yeah, this was fun. This like not fun, but this was a this was No, it's fine to say it is fun because there there is that element there, right? What makes it an entertaining watch. The themes are not fun. The as a horror film, it was fun because it was suspenseful. I was scared. I didn't always see everything coming. I wasn't always in my head about how did they do this from a film technical perspective. Even though I knew some of those, it was just like I was in the movie. I was in the story. So that was fun. It's an incredibly thrilling movie to yes. watch. Yes. Um, I felt my own anxiety spike as the oh, movie goes along. <laughs> totally. 
I didn't get jump scares nearly as much as it just a continuing sense of foreboding. Mm-hmm. I have some questions about the movie that we can get into with writing. Sure. There's some certain things that I'm like, did this do this the right way or not? Sure. But m- mostly it's just, if this is a movie you're okay with going in, it really is a valuable watch because yes. it tries to reckon those themes in a way that's understandable, I think, to everybody. Yes. And and it does so pretty artfully. I think so. Yeah, I, I think it goes back to like, I don't think anything's flat out gratuitous. No. And then I think there are some things, there, there's one scene that does feel a little gratuitous, but I feel like it's more of a callback to our director's previous film. That's entirely plausible. Yeah. Our budget for this film was $7 million. Really? That's barely anything, y'all. I'm like, I'm thinking of Elizabeth Moss's fee, and I'm thinking that, seems, that she seems like a $7 million girl, <laughs> at least. Well, so something that is mentioned in the trivia, all of this was filmed in Australia, which is oh. Lee Wanell's home country. Oh, yeah. L is Australian, and so they did all of this out there. Okay. And so I think the actual filming budget wasn't that much. I think he was working with his crews and his group of people that he normally goes with instead of like a massive studio thing. To be fair, there's not a ton of locations. No, though we'll get into some trivia. It was interesting figuring out how to make those locations work. Sure. Still, because the setups are so minimal... Mm-hmm. they were able to get away with a lot without having to spend that much money. Sure. And how they achieved all the different effects is really fascinating. Yeah. And and, and we'll get into some of that. But for all intents and purposes, this is a pretty low budget film. Yeah, which horror tends to be on the lower scale, but I don't, like I'm actually really surprised because of how grand so many things feel, very and lush certain sequences feel. So, man, way to get a lot of bang for your buck. And also this cast is fabulous. So, yeah, uh, people need to pay more attention to Lee Wan L. <laughs> well, they, they definitely are. In the U.S., it opened its opening weekend to $28 million. And as one of the last movies to be released, it did gangbusters. Its U.S. gross was $65 million. Its global gross has been $131 million. And I'm sure it's only gaining now that people are locked down and looking for different stuff to watch. As of this recording and this release, it is currently available on HBO. Mm-hmm. Not not just Max, it's on HBO. Yeah. So that's where we watched it. So, wow. that Yeah, that's amazing. So, our writer is Lee Wannell. Mm-hmm. He writes the story and screenplay. Now, uncredited for this is H.G. Wells. Sure. He's the writer of the original novel. Sure. But he has no credit on this film whatsoever because it is a completely different story. Sure. Um, same concept. Same idea, but completely different story. Well, and and also completely different in that he's not actually invisible. I mean, I think that's why you cannot have to put H.G. Wells' name on this. Sure, because while we have not seen The Invisible Man, that original film, and I haven't read that story, I know that that man is physically invisible, where this one, of course, if you're listening to this, you've seen the movie. <laughs> it's he is not invisible he is using a suit which makes him invisible exactly all right before this he wrote saw saw two saw three dead silence insidious insidious chapter two cooties the mule insidious chapter three insidious the last key and upgrade coming he will be writing wolfman and he will be writing on the upgrade television series 
Mm-hmm. So what do we think of the writing of this movie? Phenomenal. The story is really quite perfect. The The story, I love the use of technology. I'm, I'm loving how technology is being used in these horror films to manipulate and just how vulnerable we are to that manipulation. Again, it's a great, it's a great way it's being used. I just, I love it. It's so good. There's one scene in particular, and it happens to be a pretty big deal. It's the ending of the movie. Yes. That I have a lot of... Reservations about. Um, It's concerns and questions. Okay. Doing all the trivia and stuff, and there's lots of good stuff about how his writing process works. He doesn't talk about the ending much. Mm-hmm. And one of the things with this is that the trope of the victim getting revenge on the abuser Mm -hmm. has long been a trope in movies and cinema. And one of the issues it creates is that depending on how they get their revenge, it almost points to the victim becoming an abuser in and of themselves. I want to make it clear that I don't think this movie does that at all. No. There are movies that have leaned directly into that trope in disgusting ways. Sure. And get called out for it rightfully. This one, that criticism is open to it. But it also has this other moment, and and what sealed it for me in some ways is that the last shot we have of Cecilia is not one of joy or satisfaction and revenge. It's just relief. Well, here's the thing about this movie is it's a snapshot of this situation. We get dropped in immediately with her trying to escape the situation. She's in the situation. And then when we leave her, it's her being done with the situation. And... One of the things that I also liked about this film is that usually that last scene, after all is said and done, we'd usually get the perpetrator actually admitting to what they did. That's fair. I love, love that Adrian did not. I actually love because that is not in his character to admit that he did anything wrong. And that is why she did what she did, which she kills him. Yeah. We we are. I mean, we don't see it, of course. We are led to believe that she goes and puts on the suit that she hid in her secret hiding spot in the closet, and she murders him on the cameras that she has moved because she knows where, well, she didn't move that camera, but she knows where to be out of frame. So she basically torched, like she, like she murders him. The reason I am okay with it is because I genuinely believe if Adrian had confessed, she wouldn't have killed him because if he had confessed, she's bugged. She's got her cop friend listening with the purpose of convicting him and making sure he goes to jail and blah, 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 blah. That's the whole point. She's trying to get him gone. Totally. One way or another. Totally. Her friend was her insurance policy. Yeah. I believe she went there knowing that she's, he's probably never going to do this. Not, she, she just knew he probably wasn't. He's never going to admit to it because that's not in his character. If he surprises her, great. I've got it on tape. Then we can go from there. But if he doesn't, I know what I need to do and I know how to do it. And so she does it. And then we see her leave with the suit. I don't think that makes her abuser. Now, what what's interesting is what comes next for her. Because if now she does have this power, does she become an abuser? I certainly hope not. And she has this, she's with child. So what is she going to do about that? So there therein lies that. But in terms of this movie... She has escaped her abuser and made sure that that abuser will never be able to come back to her. Actually, she's escaped both of her abusers. They are both dead. Because there are two. 
Yes, there are two. There are two, which I figured out. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I figured out. You didn't. Oh, fuck no. I I kept going back and forth about the whole, like the twist, because the twist is that there are two. Absolutely. And it's both Adrian and his brother, whose name I can't remember. Tom. Tom. So when we find out Adrian's dead, I'm like, okay, whatever. And then we get it. We deal with the brother. I'm like, it's definitely the brother. Brother's definitely involved. But then when we get to the scene, it's the scene that gives it away is when they go after Story Reed's character, Sydney. Oh, yeah. Sydney's her name. I remembered a name. They actually give it away a little bit earlier, but. Well, that's when I noticed it because they shove all the stuff off the dresser. And then she runs in the hallway and runs into one. I was like, there's no way there's two there. Like, there's one person. It has to have to be two. So that, to me, I know. Oh, they gave it away with the glitchy the glitchy suit. They give it away with the glitchy suit. They give it away in the paint. When she dumps the paint, she goes down and runs mm-hmm. and gets clotheslined. Oh. And there's nobody there. So they, they actually okay. even give it away a little bit earlier. But this movie has... See, they many, really many clues peppered throughout it. That there's more than one. That there's more than one person with a, with a suit. Well, I do. I love I love that concept. But okay. But I, I'm happy with myself as a viewer that I figured out that there was more than one. Because again, that's a great concept. Because you hear Invisible Man. You're like, okay, well, there's only going to be one dude. There's one bad dude. But no, there's two bad dudes. Yeah. Actually, there were a lot of people who, when they saw the original trailer, they were like, well, this gives the entire movie away. Because mm-hmm. I think they clue in that the guy is the invisible man. Sure. And even the head of Bloomhouse, Jason Bloom, mm-hmm. tried to tell Juanel, like, hey, you, you've got to give us more. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, there, there's got to the be more twists, right? And Juanel was like, oh, there are plenty of twists. Oh, they you were mad no about f- the trailer. Huh? They were mad about the trailer? Lots of people were mad about the trailer. Oh, Bloom awesome. wasn't, but he was just like, huh, I don't, I don't know about this. And Juanel was like, oh, there are like way more twists. You have no fucking clue. That's awesome. <laughs> so I, they I, they very purposefully misdirected people by revealing shit. some big things. I love that shit. So uh, Wanell opted to not open the film with anything explaining Cecilia's abuse. Quote, I just wanted to drop the audience into her situation without any backstory and make them feel everything through her. And luckily, I had Elizabeth Moss, who is very good at communicating a lot to the audience without saying anything. That is her superpower. Go watch Mad Men. Go watch Had- Handmaid's Tale. I don't. I don't want to denigrate anything Lee Wan L does in this movie because mm-hmm. I think he does a fantastic job. Casting sealed the deal on this movie. Mm-hmm. That and he admits it. One thing is like that kitchen table sequence in the beginning of the movie where they're talking about what happened and she's like, "I can't go outside. I can't be around mm-hmm. him and all that stuff." That was apparently like ten minutes longer than it already was. Hmm. He had di- page after page of dialogue mm. written. And then Juanel saw the edit and realized that they were so expressive on their own, all three of those actors, mm. that he was like, I don't need any of this. That's great. No, like, that's why you hire actors, because they know what this character needs to do. And then you don't need all the words sometimes. Yeah, he figured out very quickly, working with a cast like this makes everything amazing. And he suddenly, it unlocked so much for him. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's something huge for him because in all the other movies he's done, they're fine actors. Don't get me wrong. There's like good people in Insidious and different movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. But in this, they cast perfectly. And because of that, it unlocked the ability for him mm-hmm. to really find his pace and vision that's as so opposed good. to trying to force it to happen. Sure. Like in Saw. 
where he's like, I might not have the best group for this, but I got to figure out a way to make it work. Which is funny because <laughs> Lee Wan L is in Saw as the other guy across from Carrie L is. Yup. The attic scene originally had more than just the phone, knife, and portfolio that she found. He said there was food that he'd been eating. She found a little stack of her clothes, including her underwear up there. Gross. It is gross, and he decided to cut it, but he did kind of leave it as a tiny Easter egg in the corner. Oh, okay. So it's not, you can't make out what it is, but you can see that there is more stuff up there in the attic. Oh, okay. Okay, that's good, because that that goes into, like, creep, like, extra creep, like, it's already creepy enough. Like, we're already in super creep territory. Now we get into stalker gross territory. All of this, all all of his making of ideas mm-hmm. with this, and a lot of this is coming from his commentary on oh, okay. the film. So this is, like, direct quotes from him. I'm totally gonna have to buy this on Blu-ray. <laughs> I'm, it's gonna happen. All of this is an exercise in restraint for him. Like, all I'm- of his movies, he's just been like, okay, we're gonna do this and this. And this movie, with the cast he had, it was like, it was all about, I have all this stuff, but I need to pare it back because I have something even better here. But you know what? That's amazing. And that's good, especially with horror and especially with this type of story. It's great. And it it just speaks to how good his story is that I had all this stuff and I was able to pare it back to make it better. It's very much that Coco Chanel line, you know, before you leave the house, do a turn and take one thing off. You know, before you leave, like one accessory, just take it off. That's what he did. He just took one thing off to let everything else shine a little bit more. That's good. That's growth. I love it. I'm so proud. Yeah. If if he had made this like like they had made Saw or Insidious or any of those type of movies, it would have been gratuitous and it would have been disgusting. And instead. That's not the story he's telling. He, he didn't do that. No. Which is awesome because it means he'll make even more sophisticated stories. No, I just, that's someone who's. And here's the thing. It's very possible they shot all that stuff and he's just like, I'm editing that out because we don't need it. And I don't yeah. care. And that's and I'm, I'm, that's fine. Oh, yeah. I, but for again, I'm looking at the final product and I'm very happy that they did that. The concept of the suit as small cameras reflecting the surroundings was to sidestep the longtime criticism of the original film and story that if Dr. Griffin had become completely invisible, he would have gone blind because light could no longer hit his retinas. This is something that's been brought up for years and years and years since the original novel was written. Interesting. And so they made the choice to make it a suit instead of him actually being magically invisible. That's interesting. Okay. Which also plays much better into the realism of this story. Sure. Who could have been better? For writer. Okay. Because this has been in development for a long time. Sure. It was originally intended as part of the Dark Universe series. The Mummy, Frankenstein, the remakes that have long been gestating and maybe, maybe not happening. Thank God it wasn't. Uh, Johnny Depp was originally going to play the Invisible Man in the original interpretation of this. Okay. Whatever. Which, if they were going for a pure remake, I think that would be different because that is about a mad scientist. Sure. And Ed Solomon, who wrote Bill and Ted and Men in Black, was going to write that film. But after the failure of 2017's The Mummy, they sort of broke apart that whole concept. And The Mummy itself was trying to resurrect the franchise from Dracula Untold, which completely tanked. I don't even remember that movie. Whatever. So instead, what they did was they said, okay, we've got these properties. We're not going to try to make it this linked universe anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be interesting standalone stories. So that's where they're focusing their efforts now. And so while Nell 
he's stated this was never intended to be any part of anything because I didn't even know what was going on until Bloomhouse wanted to meet with me after I finished Upgrade. Mm. And they and he was like, oh, cool. Y'all just want to talk about Upgrade and share some notes and stuff. And they didn't even talk about it. They're like, yeah, 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 that's good. Hey, um, you're the Invisible Man. <laughs> We've got the rights. We want to make something with you. Wait, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> Also, who could have been better for writing the script? David S. Goyer, who wrote Dark Knight and mm. a lot of the new DC movies, was attached to this script from 2007 to 2011. Okay. He could have done something cool. Again, that original story, he probably would have done a really great job with. Sure. But I um, think he, it would be too epic if he was trying to do this, this intimate horror drama. I mean, if you're looking at it from a supernatural perspective, sure. Yeah. Sure. But again, this is a very different take. This is a horror take on the invisible man not a supernatural this is a thing that's going on hire the good intimate horror guy to do this damn movie <laughs> on to directing mm -hmm. and we have lee one l again now lee one l has not directed very much nope before this he did insidious chapter three mm -hmm. and upgrade and then coming soon he will be directing wolfman upgrade for television and the remake of escape from new york he is not writing that film which I'm fine with. Yes. Um, so what do we think of the directing of this movie? Perfection. <laughs> like, okay, the writing on its own is great. It's very good. The direction of this film could not be more perfect. The second he realized in talking about the script, it was like, wait, I don't have to use all of this dialogue. He turned all of his attention towards the visuals. Here's the thing. This movie is all about negative space. Uh-huh. That whole... The actor moves out of frame and the camera just sits there thing could not be more genius because you spend half the film going, where is he? Exactly. Which is creepy as fuck. We have camera moves away from actors, visible actors, into hallways, into rooms where we don't technically see shit. Yeah. That is so goddamn creepy. And yet, I know because we had the subtitles on, we're supposed to hear the camera clicking. Yes. So he's in there, but we don't know where he is. Uh-huh. That is... <laughs> that is not... I mean, it could have been on the page, but that is a director. Oh, it's a total director move. And that's genius. And here's the thing. When the camera's doing that, it's still beautiful and interesting. He did an amazing job. If he is not up for some Director Guild awards, I'm going to be mad at them. <laughs> <laughs> We we already know, okay, it's October, so it's it's about time to... <laughs> award season's fucked this year, okay? Well, none of these come out. That's why it's fucked, and the Oscars aren't until April this year. So our whole Oscars thing, we're still trying to figure it out, y'all. Like, it's going to be fucked. <laughs> like, just things are weird here at Macintosh Mod. But as it stands right now, mm -hmm. this movie's in. Oh, well, anything that's streaming is also in, essentially. That's fair. We haven't, like, looked at all the rules, but... This is a film that has gotten made so much money and is so great. I really do hope that this gets acknowledged by the Director's Guild. Oscar people aside, because it's a whole different thing. Director's Guild, because this is a, a feat for directing. It's really good. <sighs> oh, negative space. All of this is directly corroborated in his <laughs> stuff. I mean, he says all of this. He intentionally framed all the space around Cecilia and all that stuff. I didn't. I promise. I did not read it. <laughs> Any of the trivia on this movie, I'm a genius. Yeah, they were constantly panning away. At one point, he was doing those locked wide shots so often with so much 
space in their room that some of his crew members were literally questioning why he wasn't getting better coverage of the scenes. And Wanell had to stand his ground. And be like, no. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it is fair when you are just like, okay, we're going to do a giant wide shot of a room. And some of your cinematographer people are like, are you sure you're getting every angle you want for this scene? No, that is... Um, that's that your is, job. T- totally, but that's also opposite of what you do on big films. Absolutely. Like, you do one big shot, and then you start doing close-ups yeah. of people and things where you're like, no, 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 that's, that, we're not doing that for this film. But while I was like, I had, this was a big exercise for me and sticking to my guns and being like, no, this is the vision. No, that's great, and that's also... Again, I love this. He's learning. He's learned so many things. I'm so proud of you, Leo Wanell. <laughs> That almost makes me want to watch Insidious. It's not going to happen, but almost. <laughs> it's not happening. Now, just go watch Upgrade again. I will. I love that movie. He Okay. If you've not watched Upgrade, that movie is super fucking violent. Like, it makes John Wick almost look tame in terms of violence, because it is damn. But it is so good. It's also the antithesis of this film. Yes. But in the best way. It's very good. The shower scene actually included a shot of the handprint on the door that we see in the trailer and the mm. cover art. Wanell actually removed it, restraint, because he thought Cecilia's discovery of the pill bottle created enough tension. I agree. I, I like that. I like, I also, again, here's the thing. She could take more than one shower. There's two dudes. <laughs> like, I'm, I typically don't love trailers that have, with the exception of like comedy films that have things in the trailer that aren't in the film. Yeah. Like, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm occasionally fine with like, throwaway laugh lines and trailers for comedies that aren't in the movie because you want jokes to be fresh and real. Yeah. Um, same thing with some of the suspense in in horror films. You want it to be a surprise. That one I don't care about. <laughs> it is just funny that it was bold for them to use that as the mm-hmm. still shot for the poster. Yeah. But it's and never in the thing. film. And, and that was just him going, that doesn't work for this. <laughs> well, and you know, what's funny is that if they had already chosen that and then going back and doing the fine tuning and just being like, you know what? You know he's in there. You like you've already seen the picture that gives away the suspense of why that pill bottle and they spent so much time getting coverage of her hiding the pill bottle, taking making sure that he had been drugged with the pills, then she loses the pills and then he finds the pills and then all of a sudden this bloody pill bottle shows up in her and she's been drugged and clearly she's been drugged for a while is in her bathroom. That's fucked up. <laughs> it's that, messed the fuck up. That that is the layer because that was the thing that kept like, oh yeah, he found the bottle. Of course, as well. I'm like, oh wait, he's been drugging her. Uh huh. Like, and I knew she was gonna be pregnant. Of course, like, of course. <laughs> Again, it hits on those tropes, but he's fine tuned enough to where it doesn't ruin the efficacy of the movie. No, I. The only reason why I wasn't mad about it is that because that becomes the bargaining chip. Oh, absolutely. Like if it's the sticking point and it's the thing she said, it's the one thing that she could not let happen. And then I love that shower scene when she goes, I'm not keeping the baby. You won't get the baby. And you won't get me. There you are. Oh. And then she goes, there fuck you are, me. bastard, and then stabs him. That, to me, was like, oh, fuck, yes. 
I was so happy. The whole movie is it's just, just it's just so well done. It's and stuff like that. That's that's where it's just like, yeah. <sighs> like fucking control women's bodies will control you the fuck back. Huh. Sorry. An intense mm. fucking movie. It, oh, but it's so good. Wanell had told his director of photography, Stefan Duccio, that he planned to use a lot of light in the film since the invisible man didn't need to hide in darkness. Duccio apparently, quote, kind of groaned with pain <laughs> because he, like many DPs, loved to figure out how to light darkness and film in darkness. Mm-hmm. So Wanell says that the attic scene was, quote, a little gift to Duccio Aww. as they used only a flashlight to light the sequence. That's cute. <laughs> I like that. That's kind of funny. And that is so, that is the antithesis to a horror film. Horror films are dark. Absolutely. This one is all light and bright. That makes it that much more fun. Which is, which is, again, one of the things that makes it so effective because Invisible Man does not need darkness to hide. Yeah. Which is amazing. <laughs> the Invisible Man himself was a blend of practical techniques and CGI. Okay. Some scenes required a full green suit mm-hmm. to be painted out of the sequence. Others, they just used string to pull objects or people along. Oh, yeah. So it was just rope scenes. The fight sequences were a giant mix of that. Mm. One else said, we had Lizzie being pulled around in wires. We had a stunt person in a green suit. But then also in those scenes, we would use really old school practical effects, like just pulling doors closed with a piece of string. Mm-hmm. And as Wanell observed, quote, how you do a visual effect doesn't matter. It's only the end result that matters. I agree. Which I love that perspective on using CGI versus, versus using that. And it's like, what's going to give me the best shot? Yeah, what gives me the best effect? Uh-huh. And I, I mean, I am a person who prefers practical over CGI. Only because it's so fucking cool. Because it's so cool. It's so effective. Yeah. But there's some things in this movie that you're Have moving too fast. You can't do that. For things to be fast, for things to be safe, they need to be CGI. And I don't have a problem with CGI at all. It's just how, if, if, the, if your effect can be done so easily and effectively with a piece of string and a little bit of timing, do that. Now, what I will say is the CGI used in this movie is actually a lot cooler than just having an invisible figure move stuff around. Sure. What they did was they shot with a robotic camera rig Okay. that was set up to do the exact timing and movement for each shot. Oh, okay. So in order to get those effects, they had one take with the stuntman and one without. Oh, okay. And the editors would be able to merge, merge the shots them. digitally and then erase the stuntman out of the shot. Or stuntwoman. So that you could get the effect. Oh, awesome. That's perfect. That's amazing. And then Wanell also used the camera to, quote, move away from the actors as if it had a mind of its own, as if it knew more than the characters did. <laughs> this is one of those movies where that old saying, the camera is its own character, mm-hmm. very much applies. Mm-hmm. The camera in this movie is very omniscient. Mm-hmm. and knows more than the people in the movie. Yes. And because of that, it's so incredibly effective. Oh, yeah. The camera in this film really acts as the narrator. Oh, yeah. But an unreliable narrator because the narrator is showing us the invisible man is in here. He's in here. Can you find him? No, you can't because he's invisible. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what the camera you're, is telling you. You're not wrong. <laughs> That's what's happening. <laughs> That's what the camera in this movie. I've unlocked it. I feel so smart. <laughs> they did have to do extensive location scouting in Australia to get the feel of an actual American house. 
<laughs> okay. And so they wound up using like four different locations in Sydney for different parts of the house. Oh, okay. Because they could not find one house that matched what an American house would look like. An American tech guru's house. Well, no, that actually, I, I didn't put it in the trivia, but that's actually like a very big architectural oh, feat on the shores of Australia. Okay. This is James's house. Oh, okay. That makes sense. They were like, everything in Australia is very different in sure. how we're living. Oh yeah. To get that craftsman style. Yeah. Like one of the things was Sydney's bedroom uh-huh. is actually a living room oh, in okay. Sydney because they don't have that same amount of space. Oh, sure. So they had to strip out a, a living room, room make in it into a, bedroom, into a bedroom so that it Maybe. looked the same as it would. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I get that. They actually shipped a mailbox over from the US to get the right feel. That's funny. And the bed- mail a mailbox. <laughs> and the bedroom scene where Adrian takes pictures of Cecilia and Sydney originally had the phone floating in the air in the shot. When Jason Bloom asked if Wanell wanted to do reshoots after the first test screening, Wanell said, Yeah, I want to take the phone out because it gives too much away. It does. As um, he points out, it's like, it's too hokey. It's cartoony to me. It does. It it's it completely gives away the farm. Uh-huh. Because what's creepy is when we see that happening, like we know he's there. It's like when the light flashing, I thought that was a TV on. I, thought I had was- no idea what the light was. Yeah, when I saw the light, I thought it was a TV had been left on in the room because I fell asleep with the TV on all the damn time. And then And then you see the 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 sheet being pulled back and like, oh creepy. And I didn't realize it was a camera until we f- she finds the phone and it's uh-huh. picture of her. But then what's great about that scene is then when she wakes up and you see the mannequin that looks like the old Invisible Man. And they have that they have several little tiny homages throughout the Oh, they I I noticed several those. Even though I haven't seen the film, I know enough. Oh, of course. To know that, which is kind of fun. They made nice they made nice nods to to the original and, and what it means. I appreciate that. I'm glad they did that because it would have given away too much. And that especially that early in the movie. We as an audience shouldn't know that. And we as an audience should doubt her a little bit. Like, we should doubt whether or not this is actually happening to her. Or is this, we should suspect that she may be unreliable. Only a little bit. So for me, it's not It's not that we should doubt she's reliable. Because I think that's a disservice to her character and, and being a victim. What I think is, we should doubt that she will ever be able to prove it. No, no. I meant just... A little bit. Like, there should just be the tiniest sliver of, like, are you imagining some of this? Are we seeing what you are imagining? Mm. Not mean, not in that, like, you are unreliable. Because, But this is one of those first moments where it's just like, I don't know what's happening. What's this? Because if we see the phone, we know instantly. Like, we know going into the film. Part of the job of this movie is to make the audience feel a little bit of what the other characters see. And that's why they are like, what you're saying makes no sense. I mean, yeah, to, to me, it always read because it always felt like she was telling the truth. Agreed. So the thing I always felt throughout the movie was, I don't know if she's ever going to be able to prove to anyone that Agreed. this is happening to her. Agreed. And that was the suspense and anxiety. Agreed. But there has to be a part wherein the audience can look at what she is experiencing and understand while all the characters around her think she might be lying or imagining things. If we as an audience see that phone, we think everyone else is an asshole. Fair. That That is what that turn. Okay. One, it's too hokey, and I think everyone else around her is an asshole. And also, where does the phone go? And also, why didn't Sydney see the phone too? 
Lee Wano, bringing up so many questions. So good. So good. To do this, however, they did have to ship the original set from Australia to Toronto, where Bloomhouse is, in order to redo the scene. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that kind of sucks. But good for them. They did it. Mm-hmm. And that gets us to our cast. Oh, yay. We start with Elizabeth Moss as Cecilia Cass. Mm. Before this, she was on Picket Fences, Separate Lives, A Thousand Acres, Mumford, Anywhere But Here, Girl Interrupted, The West Wing, Mad Men, Did You Hear About the Morgans, Get Him to the Greek, Darling Companion, Listen Up, Philip, The One I Love, Queen of Earth, Top of the Lake, Truth, High Rise, The Handmaid's Tale, The Seagull, The Old Man and the Gun, Her Smell, Us, Shirley, and The Kitchen. So we have never talked about her. No, and coming soon, she will be in The French Dispatch and an adaptation of Run, Rabbit, Run. Interesting. What do we think of Elizabeth Moss in this movie? She's the whole movie. It plays to her strength so fucking well. She, she's a, I'm, I've always loved her. She's a phenomenal actress. I don't love that she's a Scientologist. I will always shit on Scientology all the, day, all the time, always. Fair. Thankfully, she's not a super vocal person about Scientology, so I'm not. Like, she's in the vein of Michael Pena. Like, we know this about you, but you're not a jerk about it. So I'm going to let it go for right now. Maybe you're like level two and you haven't gotten to see new place yet. Yeah. She's amazing. I mean, it's her face. It's her react. Like, her greatest skill is her ability to react to things, which I know is supposed to be a skill of all actors, but it's not. A lot of them can't do that. And she's able to do so much with just her face. She does in this movie what has taken some actors to literally be broken by directors mm-hmm. to do. You can think of something like Kubrick and the Shining. Sure. Or there's a war film that I've heard about that that did something very similar to the actors. She's able to convincingly do that throughout the course of this movie, mm-hmm. while, as far as I can tell, being completely safe in how they make. She is a person who's able to very realistically tap into all of her range of emotions. Exactly. And she portrays being completely broken, mm-hmm. finding proof, and being able to gain at least understanding. And then that scene in the police station is mm-hmm. maybe one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Because James is trying to be like, look, here's what happened. And we know. And she just looks at him and goes, people have been trying to tell me this the whole time. You don't understand. You are still victimizing me mm-hmm. by trying to explain this to me when I know what he did. Yeah. And one of the things I love about that scene, it was just like, hmm, that's what a lot of women experience every fucking day. just being in the world. And and it's not a, like a complete condemnation of James. He's just trying to be a good detective. He's trying to be a good detective and also he he has this this is the information he has. But he's missing the forest for the trees. Totally. And she is also in the situation where she has the information to be able to give away the farm. She's she can, but she's also in a situation where she knows if she explains how she knows what she knows, it may be her undoing. So like she's just in like we and we as an audience totally understand it. And she's just able to convey everything about this that sucks so well. But I also love about this movie that we're also given these little moments where we see her happy. Like when she's able to give Sydney the money. Oh my gosh. So (laughs) good. It's so sweet and funny. And I like that in this movie we get to see her with some joy. Like, oh, there's happiness for her. Which makes it all the more heartbreaking when Sydney has to run away. Oh, when Sydney's when Sydney's the victim. And also I I I love that her friend is like, look, 
I want to believe you. I want to help you. But right now, my priority is getting my child to safety. Yes. And even Cecilia is like, I can't, like, I get it. I can't fault you for that. Like, even she understands. This is what he does. This is what he fucking does. This is what he's been doing to me. And she is ultimately faced with it. It's like, okay, I have to fucking do it myself. Like, I have to do this myself. Because otherwise, he'll just use people against me. Yep. He's, that's what he's always like he's done. he's taken everything away from me. Uh-huh. He literally did. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So. Woo! Honestly, pending whatever we sure. hear is eligible and shortlist, I really feel like she's she's earned an Oscar nod with this. She's that good in she's, this movie. I can definitely see... Um, Again, the the awards people don't love horror films, but SAG award, please. SAG and Golden Globe nominations for sure. She deserves it. This is the type of film that is more than just a horror film. It very, it's a drama. It's so much a drama. It's a drama suspense film more than a horror film. It just has horror elements. Like if you stripped those horror elements out of this movie, mm-hmm. it would be pure Oscar consideration all over the place. It really would. Because we've seen this movie been made multiple times. Sure. So it's just like, you know, it's just the horror element is adding this this layer that people are like, oh, well, nobody needs to see that. And it's like, no, it's actually no, it's fucking really, incredible. It's amazing. Moss often had to emote to an empty room with nothing to bounce off of. But occasionally she insisted that co-star Oliver Jackson Cohen be present to give authenticity mm-hmm. to the performance. Fair. She worked very closely with Lee Wannell to know when there would just be a double, so there would be a body in the room. Mm-hmm. When it was actually Oliver in the room, mm-hmm. and when there was nobody. Okay. And most often, if Adrian was speaking in the scene, Moss insisted that he be there. Mm-hmm. But there were times where it was completely blank. And the thing is, if Oliver Jackson Cohen was on set, from what I could tell, he was in the green suit. So he is actually That's on awesome. screen. That's wonderful. But he is invisible. That's great. <laughs> which makes honestly that fact makes it even more terrifying to me to think about of like holy shit he is literally in the room well i i love that and i also love that i mean that is really important for her so just as even if she's not even saying anything it's just really important for her just to be able to emote of like that feeling where you're like like just like when you're trying to find a stupid sound or a clicking and you can't tell where it's coming from like I have shitty hearing in one particular ear. So like sometimes like I'm following one ear and I will go in a full circle because I'm using my good ear to find the tone. But it's that thing where it's just like you can't do that consistently well if you don't have some direction and having the other person there is important. Yeah. A lot of people were just like, well, you know, he only shot his scenes in two days. No, he was on set the entire time. That's awesome. And he's talked about it. He's like, no, I was there for two months. I did that work. So it's interesting that we'll get into it with his his role. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's going to be very hard to judge his performance, but a lot of his performance is stuff that we don't see on screen. Mm-hmm. But it's stuff that he was definitely doing with everybody to make the scene work. Well, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We need to have a motion capture performance Oscar category. Because one, Andy Circus fucking deserves it. Well, yeah. And because so many roles now are being done via this method... It deserves a category that is a whole different skill set. And we need to recognize those types of performances. It's it's a completely different thing. And we all have seen all of this footage of the actors in the mocap suits and the green screens. So it's like there's enough to be able to judge someone's performance from mocap. Yeah, I don't think we get it from this movie just because. Anyway. No, but you know what I mean? Like this is the type of thing where it's like, yeah. 
Like, these are the type of situations where we deserve these types of considerations. Elizabeth Moss did admit, jokingly, quote, then I just started asking him to come to set to entertain me and to amuse me, because there's nothing like a tall man in a tight green screen suit. (laughs) (laughs) That's cute. And that leads us to Oliver Jackson Cohen playing Adrian Griffin. Mm -hmm. Before this, he was in Going the Distance, Faster, What's Your Number, The Raven, Dracula on television, and The Haunting of Hill House, and he is going to be in the new television series, The Haunting of Bly Manor. What do we think of Oliver Jackson Cohen in this movie? Knowing that we can really only judge his performance by like five minutes of screen time, if that. Um, it's good. I mean, he is. I mean, he's good. I mean, he's got that chiseled look about him. I know he has. He's a, he's a good actor. I I've seen all of Haunting on Hill House. I look forward to seeing him in The Haunting of Blythe Manor. So. His main featured scene, you feel his sort of offness and unhingedness. Like the first scene, you know, it's just him running after her. And like you kind of get like, oh, there's some rage there. But, you know, his wife took off in the middle of the night. So you don't really have much go. And then at the end, you're just like, okay, you're a psychopath. (laughs) Like he's intense, but you can you can almost think that away of just like this was a shitty relationship, but you know, maybe he's at least going to try to make amends. And then when he refuses to admit mm-hmm. and you see the computer mm-hmm. overheating, trying to make excuses for mm-hmm. his horribleness, uh-huh. you just see the gears turning in his head. Like he's just gaslighting her and gaslighting her. It's, it is painful. That scene might be one of the hardest to watch in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's bad. So but it's a great performance. He does, he does very well. And then knowing that he did a lot of scenes invisible in those moments Mm -hmm. and probably just staring at her, Mm -hmm. that also just adds to it to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who could have been better? Hmm. Army Hammer. Oh, okay. And Alexander Skarsgård. Well, I say no to Skarsgård because he just played an abusive husband on Big Little Lies. Mm. So no, no thank you. Army, Army would do really well. (laughs) He would do very well. I also love Army Hammer. Um, it's it's not that I don't think Army Hammer's like not a good dude. He's actually kind of an awesome dude. Mm-hmm. But he has the look. Oh yeah. He has that look. Rich douche. Yeah, that's the look. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, sorry, Army Hammer, we do actually really like you. But you could yeah, you know what you look like. And yeah. But yeah. I, I, I like the little bit I get to see of him. It makes me want to see more. Haunting of Hill House is yep. very good. And he'll be in Blythe Manor, which I'm also looking forward to. Harriet Dyer playing Emily Cass, her sister. This is really her only U.S. acting role. She's done a lot of Australian work. And she also has like a one woman show about mental health and does a lot of like touring around with that stuff. So that's kind of interesting. But what do we think of Harriet Dyer in this movie? She's a little flat, I will say. It's the writing. That is the one character that I felt was a little, I would have liked a little more context to their relationship. Oh, yeah, because that email gets it and it's just like, well, fuck you forever. And you're like, wait, hold on. We haven't established shit with them. So I love this script. I think it's great. I would have liked one scene where we kind of explain the deterioration of their relationship. And then I would have liked a little bit of evidence that they they had started to repair everything so that when they come to dinner... The sister is all like, of course, I'm here for you. I believe you. Whatever you need that after everything we've been through, that email like that hurt my feelings. That's so bad. But of course, I believe you. And then she gets murdered. That's the gut punch. Yeah. 
it is still a gut punch, sure. but it's honestly only on the strength of Elizabeth Moss's performance. Absolutely. Like her- the script gives us nothing to feel. Sure. We needed we needed a little more of like, as a person, I'm doing a lot more work to fill in that gap. And the actress, through no fault of her own, it's just that character is a little flat. Yeah. And I would have liked a little bit of resolution and then build up so that the gut punch is that they had just started to repair what had been lost, and then she's going to get blamed for this murder. That would have been, I feel, a better gut punch. Yeah. Oh, but, you know, Elizabeth Moss sells it, so I don't care. I, I don't care. Like <laughs> Aldous Hodge as James Lanier. Aldous has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Before this, he did Die Hard with a Vengeance, Bed of Roses, The Lady Killers in 2004, American Dreams, Happy Feet, Leverage on Television, The East, A Good Day to Die Hard, he was MC Ren and Straight Outta Compton, Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, Hidden Figures, Underground on Television, Turn on Television, and What Men Want. And coming soon, he's going to be one of the leads in Black Adam. Oh, okay. I I know I've seen his face around for a long time. Of course, he was in Hidden Figures. And I think based on his age, I think those early roles was like, he was kind of a kid. Mm. So he's been doing it for a long time as well, but. Very handsome. What do we think of Aldous Hodge in this movie? I love him. Oh, so good. Love him. Such an even keel foil supporting character. And honestly, more than a, like, I would almost put him as our second lead. Like, I know he's not. We really only have one lead, and that's Elizabeth Moss. In, in terms of the story, yeah, he's not a lead. But True. I get you. I get what you're saying. True. Um, But he is such an integral part to the story um, and to Cecilia's life. Like, he's so good. And he's- he And he has agency, and he's not weak, and he's not. Like, I just, he's great. He's really, he is amazing in this movie. He's grounded. He's thoughtful. His character's he, great. And I, I, you know. He's he just, the antithesis of Adrian. He wants nothing but good things for Cecilia, even though he's having to try to reckon that with she's murdered someone, as far as I can tell. Like, and he's not trying to push her. Like, when she got the, ma- he's like, she was like, as far as I'm concerned, you just ran away. I'm fine. Like, it's so sweet. Yeah. I love it. He's doing everything he can to try to help her. Yeah. He ju- that's all he wants for her. We have Storm Reed as Sydney. Before this, she was in 12 Years a Slave, The Summoning, Slight, A Happening of Monumental Proportions, A Wrinkle in Time, Don't Let Go, Euphoria, and The Bravest Night. And coming soon, she will be in The Suicide Squad. Oh, yeah. She's in Suicide Squad. What do we think of Storm Reed in this film? I still want to call her Stormy. <laughs> she was Stormy for a hot minute. <laughs> She's fabulous. She's great. Again, the heartbreak in that scene where she gets hit by Adrian mm-hmm. is just as much her as it is. She holds her own against Elizabeth Moss and that's saying something. She does. And and that one you're just horrified because you to- again, you totally believe why she thinks that she got hit by Cecilia. Yeah. Total which again, that is some amazing staging because it does for a brief second you think what? You you can you can totally see why it looks like Cecilia hit her. Yeah. Or hurt her. And that's also where your brain just like fills in weird gaps. Like what? And Storm Reed does an amazing job. She's fabulous. Yeah. I love her. I want more of her in many things. <laughs> and finally, Michael Dorman playing Tom Griffin. Before this, he was in The Secret Life of Us, Daybreakers, Killer Elite, The Water Diviner, Wonderland on television, Pirates, Dead Men Tell No Tales. He was the lead in Amazon's show Patriot on television, which I have heard very good things about. And he is also in the new television series for all mankind on Apple Plus. Hmm. He's Gordo. He's a douche in the movie. Yes. 
What do we think of Michael Dorman in this film? He plays a douche very well. Yes, he does. He's just the right amount of twitchy. and Except that at moments, you almost buy it. Like, he's twitchy and unpolished. Yeah, it's it's that unpolished thing. And then you also, at times, they try to drive sympathy towards Mm -hmm. him. Because you think, oh, shit, his brother fucked him up. And again, it's entirely possible. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he's just as bad. Mm -hmm. He's just as bad. Yep. One of the fun bits is that everything in the movie is intended to feel as though nothing about him fits. Hence why his suits are a couple of sizes too small. Oh, okay. And Dorman loved that choice. Okay. And used it to his advantage in the role. Hmm. Everything doesn't fit him. Huh. You know... I can't tell that. It's very subtle. I'm thinking once I heard it and I thought back to it, I'm like, yeah, it's a little tight on him. But if if it did nothing other than inform his performance, it did a good job. That's fine. Visually, I don't see it. It might not read very well. But, you know, this movie rewards multiple viewings. Clearly. And then a couple of our pawns. Okay. We have Benedict Hardy playing Mark, the architect who interviews Cecilia. Okay. He was Fisk. The main henchman in Upgrade. He was. Yeah. That's cool. And then Nash Edgerton plays a security guard. This is the brother of Joel Edgerton. He's primarily a stunt performer, but has also directed a few things, including a lot of music videos for Bob Dylan. (laughs) Okay. Recently. Wanell asked him if he wanted to come visit the set and say hello, and also asked if he'd die. (laughs) Nice. Just because he could. He's a stunt guy. Nice. Trivia. Wanell loves title sequences, and he wanted a simple yet impactful statement with his opening. So he had the idea for waves crashing and dripping the titles on the set. Mm. Then he discovered that water is the most difficult thing to create with CGI. Mm. (laughs) So apparently it took a while. Originally, there was music scoring it, but Wanell and the sound designers realized it worked so much better with just the silence and the waves crashing. Mm. To get the shot where Cecilia was thrown across the dining room, they had to use... Two stunt performers, one in a green suit, a bunch of ropes, a VFX team, and the robot camera rig. And they had to digitally recreate some of Elizabeth Moss's limbs as the visual flew through the air. Oh, God. (laughs) That one sequence took a lot to get right. Because fire extinguisher foam doesn't cling to bodies, visual effects had to be used to get the effect. (laughs) This movie rewards repeat viewing. Uh When Cindy gets attacked by Tom, she's wearing a shirt with a jellyfish on it. That is an indication that the attacker is Tom and not Adrian Mm. because of Cecilia's accusation of Tom being the, quote, jellyfish version of him. Oh, okay. And when Sydney is clotheslined by a man from the front after spraying the other guy with the fire extinguisher, that's an indicator that Tom and Adrian are there. Okay. Cecilia also gets the letter from Adrian's will reading at James's house, a location that nobody knows about, supposedly. Mm. And some conjecture that the shot caller Cecilia takes from Zeus is how Adrian tracks her. Yeah. But that is another big clue that I didn't even think about until somebody mentions it. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, how the fuck did she get that letter there? Because nobody's supposed to know where she is. Mm -hmm. When Adrian asks Cecilia if she wants pasta, sushi, or steak, she chooses steak so she will have the knife ready to kill him. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the actual camera suit couldn't be folded easily. The suit in the purse was actually just a wetsuit with a little bit of that camera texture draped over it. (laughs) And finally, the password at Adrian's door is 1933, the year the original film was released. Oh, that's cute. So that leads us into our ratings for this film. Uh And of course, as every film is, we need a very specific rating system for the movie. Uh 
what are we going to give as a system for this film? I feel like cameras is a pretty good choice. Little clicky cameras. Little cameras. How many little clicky cameras do you want to give this movie? Five. Woo! Okay. I loved it. (laughs) I did. Like, even the the one story thing that I'm like, I wish they would have done this differently. I don't even care. I don't care. The acting is great. The story is great. The directing is great. I love it. I don't totally want to watch it again just because it's going to give me the X, but I also want to see the things I missed and I want to watch all the behind the scenes and I want to watch the director's commentary. I want all of it. It's really good. It's a five. Thinking really hard about this one. I'm going first instincts from like, that's just been my thing from, I, I don't want to think about it too hard. Four and a half. I don't quite want to give it that perfect score because of some of those story elements and because the impression walking away from it, especially with that ending, Mm -hmm. not that I think it was bad and I think it was right, but it still left me with a little bit of questioning thought. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I watch this movie again and I catch those things I missed before, I'm just going to give it a five eventually. But I don't feel that way just after watching it this first time. When we do our year in movies, it'll be interesting to see how you feel. Yeah, that's fair. Hmm. Interesting. And because this was such a heady movie Mm -hmm. and because it is a remake of a property that is so long ago, Mm -hmm. I thought it'd be really interesting for us to go sit down and watch the original Invisible Man, a classic of original horror cinema, Mm -hmm. and see some of the similarities, differences, and interesting things we could talk about with that. Okay. I really think that would be fascinating. Okay. So let's go watch that. And we'll come back and talk about it. Okay. All right. So we just watched The Invisible Man, 1933. A scientist finds a way of becoming invisible, but in doing so, he becomes murderously insane. Uh Uh-oh. This is one of the classic horror films. Like the original Hollywood horror films. Yeah, it is. In and Among the Dracula, mm-hmm. the Frankenstein, and all of that. Yeah. It's not bad. I mean, it's from the 30s. So, <laughs> yeah. like, you've, like, their sense of humor is very different. I expected a little more darkness than I got from this movie. Yeah, it came off very cheesy. I'm not like, Oh, I think this is cheesy because it's 2020. No, this this reads cheesy for 1933. It feels like they were so concerned about audiences being freaked out by the effects mm-hmm. that they almost forced some hijinks into it. Yeah. As opposed to letting it be terrifying. Because here's the thing. The effect is really it, good. It, it is very cool. It's almost like they didn't take their story seriously. So they decided to like, let's have the characters be absurd and ridiculous instead of having them take it very serious because they didn't. That's my problem. And so it's funny. I know the trivia already a little bit. I think it's the directing. I think it's the studio. Okay. I think the story actually hews pretty close to the original novel. Okay. And in that sense... The baseline of the story does feel like it's willing to go to those dark points. Sure. I mean, especially there. especially when Adrian is sitting down and having conversations mm-hmm. with people and like really showing it was like, 
oh, I'm mad with power now. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can't get away from that. You can't fuck with me. And I'll do anything. Everything you ask me. You will? That's fine. Just sit where you are. I'll get out and take the handbrake off and give you a little shove to help you on. You'll run gently down and through the railings. Then you'll have a big thrill for a hundred yards or so till you hit a boulder. Then you'll do a somersault and probably break your arms. Then a grand finish up with a broken neck. Well, goodbye, Kemp. I always said you were a dirty little coward. You're a dirty, sneaking little rat as well. Goodbye. And those are the coolest scenes in the movie. It's funny because those are also the scenes where he's not really invisible. True. Those are interesting and those are fun. That's also the part of the character that they really kept for the 2020 version. Absolutely. Which I thought was really great. I thought that was a great nugget to build a character off of, especially since this was the source film for what we just watched and i loved that for so many different reasons but it just took it in a completely different way so i like that they kept that okay this guy has been running this experiment and then one of the side effects is that he's kind of going crazy and i guess that leads to question because they did plan a straight remake of this movie mm-hmm. and tried to do it several times would it work now and i think i think it totally would from the nuggets and kernels we see from this movie yeah it really would it would, and I would, I would honestly love. Like, I don't want to do like a sequel, but from the same type of team, that same group from the 2020 group, to take this and be like, okay, so we have the technology to do it with a suit, but what if? Okay, the suit's fallible. So what if it was something you could do to your actual body, and what does that effect have on your psyche? That would be an interesting thing to have someone like a Lee one l because he did such a great job with that introspection, with with that character development, to have him examine it in that way. I'm not saying to do it because it would just <laughs> – it might feel like a complete rehash, but it would be really cool to see what his mind would do with it. Yeah, and and the movie has been remade a few other times. Sure. they've They've done different versions of it, but really now I think – that is where the most interesting part of it lies is that essence of, you know, him coming up with this invisibility chemical. That's not the thing that's concerning. Mm-hmm. That's just a feat of science. Sure. But it turns out that one of the main chemicals he's using drives a man insane. Yeah. And that is where it gets fascinating, where you could go with it. Sure. And the possibilities. Well, I also liked, because I didn't know this without watching the film was that you have to continue to take it it's not like a one and done yeah which goes back to the whole superpower type thing mm-hmm. you know usually in superhero films once you get the superpower you have it forever um, unless something happens to you so this is something he continually has to take in order to keep this going so there's an element of i know what it's doing to me and i don't care yeah because the the positive for me is outweighing the negative. Like I'm gaining something from this that's worth all the negative that it's taken away from me. So that's that's interesting. There are lots of interesting little nuggets, and it's just couched in this. I, I agree. It's like the studio didn't want to fully go there, which I get for a 30s popcorn movie. <laughs> I do, but I... I think it would be a better film if everybody in it was taking it seriously. It makes me want to go watch like Dracula and Frankenstein, which are 
I think even more well regarded than this one. Sure. To see if that darker element really is present, and that's why those have a little more staying. Power. I've seen Frankenstein. I've never seen because I had to read the book in high school. So I haven't seen any of these original four. Okay. And so I feel like there's a reason why those two in particular have stuck around, and this one kind of gets forgotten mm-hmm. on that list. Hmm. Hmm. So we don't know a whole lot about the money because it's 1932. Sure. We know that it grossed $27,105 worldwide, which is about $542,000 today. Okay. But like, even with that, it's pretty impossible to know how much money this made. Well, I mean, it's hard to know how much they spent. Because this probably showed in a hand. Well, it, it showed in a handful of movie theaters in an original run. Uh-huh. But then, you know, this movie played for decades in movie houses all across the country like even in 1930s money if they spent a hundred thousand dollars which there's no way they did oh no that would have been like making gone with the wind but a five hundred thousand dollar return is phenomenal so it definitely made its money it had to have been a success for it to have the longevity that it did and it was writing off the success of frankenstein and dracula so The four movies that are considered the original horror setup from Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. are Frankenstein, Dracula, this, and a movie called The Old Dark House. It came out in 1932. Okay. And then there's a few spinoffs like Bride of Frankenstein and things like that. Hmm. Uh, But this is considered one of those tentpole in the four. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be interesting because I would expect we're going to see others soon if they're already talking about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. We've got to have more coming. Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. So the old dark house sounds like it could be a fun idea to mess with. I don't know. Especially if you update it with technology. Murder house. Mm. Just so you know, if you get an Alexa or an Echo, which I'm sorry if I just turned yours on in your house, but it's going to murder you. Yeah, pretty much. That's what we've decided. <laughs> so Alexa, please don't murder. <laughs> <sighs> well, our writing. First, we have H.G. Wells, who was still alive at the time this film was made. Yeah. So that is impressive to think about. 1933, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then we have the screenplay writer, who is R.C. Sheriff. He is a playwright and screenwriter. Before this, he wrote The Old Dark House. And after this, he wrote Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula's Daughter, The Four Feathers from 1939, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Forever in a Day, and Quartet. Okay. So he's got some big names to his his stuff. What do we think of the writing of this film? It's okay. My my issue is with the acting, (laughs) which I think is the directing. The story is very cool. Yeah, the the story, I like, I mean, we just just talked about it. We like the story. It's interesting. The events that take place all make sense to me. It holds up, which... You're always bracing yourself from a 30s movie or a 40s movie. It's like, is this plot going to hold any Is the plot going to hold up? Is it going to be just terribly, terribly racist? That too. Uh, Like, which we still have a problem with, even with like movies from like 2000. (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not great, y'all. You know, the the fun part is, is that a lot of these movies still do hold up because Mm -hmm. they're kind of telling sort of timeless classic tales. Well, and the reason they get remade is because the story has a nugget that is worth examining and then re-examining in a different way. Yep. So, I mean, hence all the remakes. Yeah. I think think it just comes down to the only thing that I would complain writing-wise 
is just all the the visual gags and cues. Mm -hmm. And again, that might not have been Sheriff's total choice. That might have come into the directing and the creation of the film. Hmm. But, you know, if we're judging by what we have, I'm like, if he wrote all that into the script, boy, pair it back. Because a little bit of it is fine. Sure. Especially when we're not going to show anybody dying on screen. Well, it's it being in the script is fine. Like the woman howling. It's funny. Oh, it's fucking great. Because it's just so insane. But it's so out of place. And it's over the top. And it takes me out of what's happening. Like I'm not worried about what's happening to her. I'm like, that woman's laughing too much. She's howling. Like this is comical. And this moment's not supposed to be comical. Yeah. So I can. that's a problem with direction and acting, not writing. Yeah, that's fair. Because I can, I can see it all being in there. And it's fine. Yeah. Sheriff asked for a copy of the novel when he got to Universal. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have one. Oh, God. What they had were 14 other treatments of the film oh. already done. <laughs> including a version set in Tsarist Russia and another set on Mars. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no. No. Old fucking Hollywood, man. Jesus. So Sheriff found the novel at a secondhand bookstore. And after reading it, he decided it should just be a straight adaptation. Mm -hmm. He thought the story was so solid on its own that he could just let it do the work. Mm -hmm. And that was different than Dracula and Frankenstein. They had Mm -hmm. really overhauled those stories Uh for screen. Sure. So this worked out pretty well in their favor because Wells being alive had negotiated script approval. Oh, okay. So it was pretty easy to get him on board when they said, we're just adapting your novel. Oh, sure. (laughs) Well, because it's a compliment to him. And, you know, some of the best film adaptations are ones that stick very close to the book. And when they make changes, it's either to suit the needs of filmmaking or, hey, you know, to to expand to an audience, we moved it from this location to this location. So this reference needs to change or we're updating it from the 50s to the 90s. So we can't make this reference or like removing, you know, things that are no longer culturally appropriate or acceptable. <laughs> Those types of things. But you can, you can almost see it in this film when it shifts from we're going to do a thing now to this feels like it came from that story. Sure. And again, it almost always comes back to when we are looking at Dr. Griffin doing this stuff, we're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. When it's the group of people, when it's the mob, it's absurd. Of course. When it's focusing on him, it's very interesting. It is. And I will say part of that is because there's a very new and important technical thing that's happening so everyone has to be serious. Yeah. Everyone has to be focused. No one can fuck around when you're doing something that you've never done before. Like, There's... even I know that. And I don't even know the trivia, but I know that. Oh, no. Well. I can, I can guess that. Sadly, one of the things, there's not that much trivia. And there's not a big secret on how they do this. But No, I know it's not a big secret. It's interesting. All right. So now we get to our directing. And this is probably where we have some of our troubles. But, again, it's a little interesting. Okay. Our director is James Whale. Before this, he directed Journey's End, Hell's Angels from 1930, Frankenstein from 1931, The Old Dark House. After this, he directs Bride of Frankenstein, okay. Showboat in 1936, and The Man in the Iron Mask in 1939. Ooh. What do we think of the directing of this film? I mean, it's a technical feat. For, for, ni- for 1933, it's a technical feat. It is. But 
those mom scenes, it's the absurdity. We don't play for the trueness of the situation. We are playing a farce almost. It is. And it is interesting because there is no art to the editing of this movie. I'm I'm not going to shit on it for that for 1933 because there is an art to the editing because of their technical feat. True. But there are some noticeable things that go on mm-hmm. that make this movie feel slapped together more than and, and there are movies that come out around the same time that are impeccably staged and put together. Uh-huh. But like the first time it really got me was we do this grand parlor scene to introduce the daughter and the older doctor who's in charge of all this stuff. And we do this long track shot through the room mm-hmm. and a guy goes into a door opens it and goes into another room, but we pass the wall uh-huh. on the camera. Yeah. And we never do anything else like that in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then we have these scenes which just get cut in very strange places. And that's what I mean that there's no art to it. You know, it's a fact of like this is being hand done. So I don't want to like completely shit on them for the technical aspect of it. But it's that there wasn't, it feels like there wasn't a lot of thought put behind. And there are directors in this time who are putting that level of care and thought into filmmaking. So there's a there's a carelessness there that makes me suspect on what Whale's doing. And then, like you say, adding on top of that, all of the comedy yeah. that just feels forced into the film sure. for no reason. And there are moments where they could have had fun with it. Because there's almost this element where when Adrian decides, fuck it, I'm just going to be evil... We could have had fun. We we could have had moments of that where he could have been playing tricks on people. But no, we didn't get to we didn't get to do any of that. And and you know, I, I understand a different time, but that was a choice that they made and it's just bad. If he's that prankster in the town, that whole thing in the town, I'm fine with being funny. But by the time the cops are hunting him down and he's threatening to kill this guy at 10 o'clock, mm-hmm. it should be scary. Not lift a guy up and spin him around in midair. Exactly. Like, we should be concerned. And, you know, there's a way to be scary in 1933 without causing the censors to kill your film. There just is. I mean, you also choke a guy in the next five minutes and drive his car off a cliff. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure we're okay with showing some pretty nasty stuff. (sighs) To show Reigns as invisible when the bandages were removed, Whale had... Claude Rains dressed in black velvet in front of a black velvet curtain. And that was how they achieved the outline effect. Blacking him out. Yeah. I gotta say, it's really impressive. Oh, no, it's great. Because there's a couple moments where you can see the shadow. Absolutely. You can see his outline of his face. But that's okay. Like, one of the things that kind of annoys me, it didn't bother me with the 2020 version of, like, not, because they're playing with, the negative space. Oh, like, that was that was part of the that, tension. That yeah. was part of the horror. And this film, it was kind of fun because you know he's in the room and you know he, you're supposed to be watching him do things without him being there. Yeah. And it's fun to be able to kind of get this glimpse in certain angles of his actual outline. That is fun. That's a fun little like wink. And I, I know it's not supposed to be a week, but like that for me today in 2020, that's fun to see. Yeah. And and we get that a little bit in the new film, especially once we glitch the suit and we see him every moment. Once we know how it actually works. And that's that's really cool. 
it almost helps it to show this was important. One other interesting fact is that James Whale was openly gay in Hollywood at the time. Oh, wow. That's unusual. It was not something that he was like, you know, in the papers talking about, Mm -hmm. but it was something that everyone around him knew and that he did not hide from anyone. Uh And I say that not just to point it out that that's very interesting and unique for the time, but it does come to play later on in our trivia. So talking about our cast, we have Claude Rains playing Dr. Jack Griffin, a.k.a. the Invisible Man. Mm. This is his first major film role. Okay. After this, he is in The Prince and the Pauper from 1937, The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938, Casablanca. He is one of the main guys at the bar in Casablanca. Phantom of the Opera from 1943, Notorious, Deception, Lawrence of Arabia, and The Greatest Story Ever Told. Interesting. Along with lots of other things. Prolific character actor for sure. All right. What do we think of Claude Rains in this film? He's doing a performance that we don't see. Yes. <laughs> um, which is interesting. Um, his voice is great. His voice is fantastic. His, his voice work is great. My understanding is that he does all the physical work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's he's, sure. he's in all of the scenes when you see the bandages and things sure. like that. So it's it's all him. It's always it. him. So this is like our first uh, motion capture performance ever. Kind of. That's kind of cool. I mean, he does a phenomenal job. He really does. Like, out of everybody in this movie who can feel a little bleh, he's fantastic. Yeah, you get the maniacal shit from him. His laugh is bonkers. I'll show you who I am and what I am. (laughs) That laugh, that sort of shriek and cackle is something else. It's great. (laughs) The first time his daughter ever saw the movie was in 1950 at a showing in a theater. Reigns was uh, peppering in little anecdotes about how the film was made throughout watching. And all of the other patrons stopped watching the movie, turned around, and listened to his stories instead. Because his voice is so distinctive, they knew it was him in the theater. The other thing was apparently they went to the film in Pennsylvania, and he was covered up by a hat and scarf because it was cold. The attendant recognized him immediately... <laughs> Sure. And offered to let him in free, but Reigns was angry and insisted to pay. That's funny. No, I want to pay. The way Claude got cast in the role was that James Whale accidentally heard him test screening in a different room of the studio, Mm. heard his voice and decided he wanted to cast him in the role. The clarity and enunciation of his voice was key because of his face being covered. Sure. He had to be understood. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. You can't have somebody who you can't understand. I mean, like, all of us now, we're living in the world where we're all wearing masks when uh-huh. we go out, like, just trying to order your food, trying to talk to a cashier at, at Target. It's just like, wait, what? And it's just trying to project your voice, trying to speak clearly. And if you're a chronic mumbler, it's that much worse. You have to focus on it so much more. Yeah, and it's interesting. They don't say this, but that leads me to believe that a lot of his performance, he's doing his performance under the bandages and being mic'd that way. I wouldn't say that that's absolutely true based on how it sounds, but I also wouldn't put it past them for that. Well, they mic'd actors way differently back then. They absolutely did. It was, I mean, you've seen Singing in the Rain. (laughs) But but the way that they they explain that, it makes me think that they did. It wouldn't surprise me. 
And then one other note, Mark Hamill bases his voice performance of the Joker on Claude Rain's performance in this film. Um, his cackle, for sure. Oh, yes. Um, sound, it did remind me of that. Just that menace in his voice. I mean, Mark Hamill's a fabulous voice performer, and he was great as Chucky. (laughs) I mean, he was. He does does a great job. You could do worse than picking this performance to work your Joker idea around. If you're picking a menacing voice, this is a great one to pick. And it's it's classic. Who could have been better? Boris Karloff. Of course. He was the original choice and was rumored to have declined because his face would not be seen. But it's actually a little deeper. He and James Whale were lovers and professional partners, but they broke up shortly before filming began. And so Karloff was out. He decided he was not interested in working with Whale. So. All of the above. mm. Also, it's considered that Karloff's lisp had become an issue with his acting it had gotten even more pronounced over time. Mm. And because of that, they were like, yeah, we can't have him doing this one. Yeah, well, that's the wrong voice for this. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he ha- he was a well-known person. And to have your well-known person not be seen was just unheard of. <laughs> I mean, it's now- not- nowadays it's a power move. But back then, it's, you know. Also, who could have been better? Colin Clive. He was the original Dr. Frankenstein making history with his line, It's alive! It's alive! He was tempted to take the role, but he couldn't because he had a planned vacation home to England, which in 1933, I get, man. (laughs) That's that's a voyage. When you're trying to go visit home in 33, hell yeah. That's a voyage. (laughs) It's it's a voyage. It's like, I gotta go see. You are literally getting on a boat. Also, I work for the studio like nine months out of the year. I need my vacation. Totally. (laughs) Next up, we have Gloria Stewart playing Flora Cranley. We've talked about her before. We have. This is only the second year of her career. Mm. Um, She's a early to mid 30s Hollywood starlet. Mm -hmm. Um, She's pretty much big all throughout the 30s. The big films she was in after this are Gold Diggers of 1935 1939's The Three Musketeers, my favorite year, Titanic as Old Rose, and The Million Dollar Hotel. What do we think of Gloria Stewart in this film? She's gorgeous. Yes, I mean, she's absolutely. Like, she she looks like one of those 30 starlets. She's also terrible. <laughs> she, she's, she's terrible. She's not as bad as she could be. Like, let's be clear. Her whole job is to be like, what about Adrian? Like she's written horribly like, to, to be fair, but she's also just wringing her hands about being sad about a boy. It's the stereotypical overacting totally. that we always hear about. Totally. And it's funny because like I've, you know, I've seen my fair share of like older movies and I always think this is what I'm going to see. Sure. This is what you brace yourself for seeing. Yeah. And then, ha- like, so much of the time, it's not that. It has a lot of nuance. And, and then depth. we see a movie like Meet Me in St. Louis from the 40s, and we're like, this movie is a delight. And everybody's got, like, a lot of range sure. and depth in their character. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's a little bit of cheesiness, sure. but that's the point. Yeah. But this, there's no reason for her to be so overly dramatic about what she's doing. This is what you always brace for and sure. hate seeing. And yeah. it's here on full display it, from her. It sucks. It's here and it's annoying. Ugh. 
it's here and I don't like it. So many flailing on top of <sighs> benches and couches. Yeah. And crying over her boy. Crying over her boy. Yeah. And then trying to save him when he's clearly a murderous psychopath. Yeah, like, girl, you in danger. <laughs> she apparently had issues working with Claude Rains. She asserted that he was backing her into the scenery during all of their scenes, preventing her from performing. Okay. <laughs> Aggressive male. There you go. Whale wound up having to take Reigns aside and says, you have to share the scene with her. Okay. Like, it's one of those things where she has to sell the movie too, so we have to be able to see her. It can't be all about you, my dude. And that's it for our main cast. We have our puns. How do we have our puns? We don't know who any of the fuck these people are. Well, we do, actually. Oh, yeah. How is that possible? Um, We have Henry Travers playing Dr. Cranley, the old guy. That's Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Allow it. <laughs> I, I told you. We have Walter Brennan playing the bicycle owner. He was a longtime Western actor and played Grandpa McCoy on The Real McCoys on television. Eh. And we have John Carradine as the informer in the telephone suggesting ink be used. Okay. This is the patriarch Mark. of the Carradine family. It's like, okay, it's a Carradine. <laughs> I'll allow it. He is the elder Carradine. He is the Carradine. He was also in Grapes of Wrath, Stagecoach, and the Ten Commandments. And then Dwight Fry, who plays a reporter, he was Renfield in 1931's Dracula and also shows up in Frankenstein, A Bride of Frankenstein. And a lot of these people were also in sure. the same movies. So they it, all had to have worked with Whale before. It's a studio film. But it is interesting that they were all specifically in that set of movies. So yeah, there were some Arpons. Meh. You know. Sure. Okay, we have one piece of trivia for this movie. Oh, we only have one. Okay. One extra piece of trivia okay, along one. with all of this. Okay. The total body count of this film, based on what we hear, is 122. How is that possible? We see four murders happen on screen. Uh-huh. We hear about the around 20 search party members who die because it's a one-off line from the police officers. Oh, okay. That's usually calculated at 18. And then they mention that the train derailment causes 100 deaths. I forget about the train. That's right. He's... So out of all of the original Universal Horror series, this makes the Invisible Man the, the most, most bloodthirsty villain of all of them. He's the most murderous. <laughs> he caused the most death. Interesting. This movie has a Rambo-level body count. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I think that's something that does get lost in the in the time period. Is that trail derailment especially? Mm -hmm. That's bonkers. It is bonkers. I mean, it did get lost on me. It did. Yeah. But because it doesn't like show very well on screen. No. And that's a little bit of just how they made it. But when they drop that of like, yeah, 100 people die and you're like, oh, damn. Mm -hmm. If I put myself back in 33, I'd be like, oh, my God. He did what? He did what? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Which again makes this movie ripe to be remade. Yeah. Like make him invisible and then make him that dictatorial, I'm going to own the world vibe. I mean, that's what they did with the new one. I mean, sort of, but I'm I'm thinking like this guy has grand ambitions of power. And then he causes mass level stuff to happen. Like it becomes a grand action epic in that way. 
It's like, what if you took Thanos but made him a guy who was turning invisible? That's what I'm thinking here. And is that something interesting to play with? No. That issue we're seeing happen. We're seeing so many superheroes films. So it's like, well, your superpower either brings out the best in you or it brings out the worst in you. And that would be the exact same story here. Yeah, fair. So they have to decide we're going to tell this story of this man who is doing this thing. Like, and he's already not a great dude. So now he's got this power. So what makes this interesting? Well, his plan at the beginning is just to like rob banks and stuff. Yeah. He's like, oh, I can get material goods. And then slowly throughout the course of the movie, it morphs as he starts to. He's just taunting people with yeah. his power. Yeah. While the chemicals just continue to leach Eat into his, his system. Brain. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely something there. Well, that's it for this movie. It's a little short, but you know, it's a short ass yeah. movie. Yeah. Not a not a bad twofer. So, ratings for this film? We could go for the iconic glasses, right? <sighs> I'm fine with the the glasses. For the darkened glasses. The I dark- think it's just so perfect. I think I'm fine with that. They had them in the the new film too i'm gonna go right down the middle two and a half that's exactly what i was gonna do it's it's not bad for for an hour and 12 minutes of your time it's worth a watch here's the thing if you liked the new one it's worth watching this yeah just just to find the sources or if you've if you've watched the original frankenstein the original dracula it's worth rounding out seeing seeing that collection yeah because it's the same group of people do it the acting is hokey as shit. But our main dude is is great. Claude so. Rains is phenomenal, and it, it, it that's worth the price of admission for this movie. And the story is still sound. Yeah. So it's, it, and that's the reason why it's been remade so many yeah. times. That's true. So that's pretty good. And that's it for this movie. Yeah. And these two movies. So what do we have next on our plate? Next, we're going to watch another more recent film that we missed in the theater. We're going to watch Ready or Not. Mm, interesting. We wanted to see this film in theaters. We were very curious. And then with the news of the new Scream film and looking into who's doing the new Scream film, the team behind Ready or Not is the same team that is doing Scream 5. So we're like, hey, we got we got to go investigate. We got to We got to go. We wanted to see this movie anyways. Let's go do it. Are they good? Do they-, they know what they're fucking doing? What what is the flavor of movie we might be getting in Scream Five? So mm. let's let's go let's go watch out. that. So ready or not, we're watching that film. Until next time, bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.